Guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Well, a happy Easter to you all. A joyful day, a day in which we relive and enter into the joy of the disciples who encountered uh, over 2,000 years ago something, something utterly inexplicable. A discovery that has resounded down through the centuries, awakening faith in people of every race, nation, and tongue, in every circumstance, of every country, of every nation, every people that's ever lived. This is what we celebrate today. This is why the Paschal candle burns with the light of Christ. This is why the waters of baptism flow to wash and cleanse us of our sins and incorporate us into his body. And over the last few days, as we've gone through in the Paschal Triduum, Holy Thursday, Jesus' last supper with his disciples, his agony in the garden, asking his Father to let the cup of his suffering pass him by, but in a self-offering, praise not my will, but yours be done, enters into his suffering, his unjust arrest and accusation, his torture, his carrying of the cross, and his crucifixion outside the city of Jerusalem. We pass through those days rehearsing his passion. We've been entering into the, the mortification of the spirit of Lent for the last 40 days in order to prepare to celebrate this day well. Because you can't celebrate this day. You can't enjoy the resurrection unless you saw him dead on the cross. What does a resurrection even mean? What does it even mean if there's no suffering and death that preceded it? So we accept our own death, the deaths to self that our Lenten penances involve, in order to be able to experience the joy of realizing death is not the last word, it's not the end. And nothing is as it appears. In the 20th century, there were many who were able to see in the midst of dark, dark times the hope of the resurrection and what it meant to God's people. One of them was a Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived in the 1930s and 40s and ministered in Germany during the rise of the Third Reich. And his resistance of the Third Reich got him killed. He was an outspoken, vocal defender of human rights, of justice, and of the terrible, terrible crimes. Uh, not a defender, but an accuser, uh, uh, an opponent of the terrible crimes committed by the Nazi regime. And it ended up getting him killed, as I said, in a concentration camp. But we, we have many of his writings. He was a prolific writer. He corresponded with many people, wrote, preached. We, are, we have a, an enormous amount of his, of his thought, of his preaching, and his perspective on what was happening in the country of Germany, of course, throughout the world. He had very strong things to say about how it was that that time and that place and that culture got to the place that it was. It was his opinion, it was his perspective as a pastor, that it was... It was ultimately a theological, spiritual reality that was at work. 
He said, there's such a thing as holding grace cheaply. Bonhoeffer wrote, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without the discipline of the church. Communion without confession. Absolution without the confession of our sins. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without the cross. Cheap grace is grace without Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer saw that as the center began to fall apart in his country, causing untold suffering, untold crises and disaster for the whole world, that it began in the church. It began with holding grace cheaply. Though grace is something given freely that we do not earn, nothing that we do, nothing we, we do can, can produce the life that Christ offers us, the forgiveness and reconciliation that's given to us in the Lord, the washing of our sins so that the old me dies with Christ and rises up out of the waters of baptism for a life hidden with him forever in God, unassailable. Who can produce that for themselves? Can we, can we create that on our own? Some of, us think, some of us think we can. There's many who say we're almost there to be able to defeat death itself through the power of human technology, through medicine. But what will that produce? Not an everlasting life, but a prolongation of a living death. A world without God. A world where grace is held cheaply. We pray for the same spirit that overtook the disciples on that Easter morning as they came to that empty tomb and hardly knew what to make of what they saw. They sought for human explanations for what they experienced. An empty tomb. Well, maybe someone came and moved his body. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. Maybe somebody came in and stole it. Maybe he never really died in the first place. Maybe he just fainted there on the cross. But then he himself appeared. He himself revealed his glory. I have conquered death. Death has died. And resurrection faith began anew. That was the same faith that drove Peter to preach that sermon in our first reading. That was the first homily ever given. Peter, there in the city of Jerusalem, where just 50 days before Jesus had been crucified, stands up and begins to preach that this man whom you crucified has raised from the dead and is here to save you from your sins. He did so at the peril of his own life. 
What, what confidence did he have that the exact same thing that happened to Jesus would not happen to him? But there was a boldness in him that transcended mere human explanation. You see, the disciples didn't, on Easter morning, run out to proclaim Jesus raised from the dead. They didn't, did they? They had the information. They, they believed. They saw. But they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. And so they went back to the places where they had seen and met and heard Jesus, the upper room, the Sea of Galilee, the same places that he had spent his earthly ministry. They returned to those places to try to pray and discern. What do we do? You see, you see the information wasn't enough. Just knowing that Jesus rose from the dead, well, that's important. But what was lacking was the strength and the grace to live out of that truth. That came later, 50 days later, to be precise, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended in tongues of flame on the disciples and filled them as a temple, filled them with the grace and power of God himself to go proclaim this message of salvation, beginning in Jerusalem, and then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we too pray for that same spirit because just knowing and believing isn't enough, is it? We still struggle to know how do we, Lord, respond, answer this information with our lives? How does it become the truth out of which I live? Because nothing less than that is what is being asked of us. Anything less, of, less than that is cheap grace. Send your Holy Spirit on us, Lord. Fill us again with your Spirit. The Spirit that was given to each of you at your baptism and confirmation. The Spirit that's renewed in his body and blood at each holy sacrifice of the Mass. Help us see the world through the reality that has been preached, which we believe, and which changes everything. Nothing will ever be the same. Nothing is as it appears. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of human beings, well, what, is it, what does it produce? At best, a futility, a sense that, well, all this is going to end in death anyway. So what's it matter? Not everything is as it appears. The wisdom of the world is nothing compared to the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God who entered into our human condition to die for us and so put death to death. That is our wisdom. Send your spirit, Lord. Create us anew. Renew the face of the earth by the renewal of your church as we hold dear these gifts of grace and find in them not only something to die for, but something to live for.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.